Good evening, everyone. I'd like to uh, call to order the uh, March 18, 2019 meeting of the Astoria City Council. And uh, roll call, Mr. Pearson. Councilor. Councilor West is uh, excused. She had a commitment from before she was made a city councilor that she was honoring, so she's not here tonight. Uh, before we get started, I would like to uh, see a, a new face, appropriately wearing red, fire engine red. We have our, our, our new permanent fire chief, Fire Chief Dan Crutchfield. Dan, if you could uh, come up and maybe would even ask you to say a few words for the crowd about your background. said my name is Dan Crutchfield. Um, I uh, was born and raised in Coos Bay. I spent 26 years there in the fire department. Uh, started out as a volunteer the first three years as a volunteer and the last six I served uh, there as a battalion chief. So I worked uh, on duty for 48 hours and, uh, and off for 96 and during those two days I basically ran the operations of the department, uh, supervised my staff and then administered a bunch of projects, uh, which was good. It kind of made me well-rounded and kind of prepared me uh, for this position. Um, although I would say I don't think anything can completely um, get you ready. I'll be learning some things as we go. Um, I got to spend the last couple of uh, my work days at the fire department meeting staff uh, in the city hall and got to meet uh, some of the staff there. And that will continue probably for the next few weeks as I learn how everything works. And uh, I am super honored and very happy to be here. And it's a privilege uh, to have been selected by the city manager to serve as the next fire chief. Okay. Well, welcome. Well, welcome, Chief. And we feel doubly uh, happy because we had a, a wonderful interim fire chief who served us very well and gave us time to find uh, an excellent permanent chief. So welcome to the community. And just to let you know that uh, that uh, our interim chief, Chief Curtis, will be here for another couple weeks, um, overlapping with Chief Crutchfield uh, to be able to kind of do a good handoff. Um, so uh, you'll still see uh, Richard around town for the, the next couple weeks as well. Okay, excellent. Uh, next on the agenda, we have a couple of presentations from uh, Ms. Sarah Lou Heath. First from the ADHDA and then continuing with uh, an overview of the parking study. So welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having us here tonight. As Mayor Jones says, I'm Sarah Lukeith. I'm the Executive Director of the Astoria Downtown Historic District Association. Uh, we do have a couple new counselors um, on the dais since the last time I spoke. So I'll just say quickly that ADHDA is a Main Street organization. We're performing Main Street, which is a national affiliation. It's the highest level that you can have designated for your organization. And um, there are about nine other performing Main Streets in the state and about 80 other communities uh, participating in the organization. So um, at ADHDA, it is our mission to encourage community involvement and investment in preserving historic downtown while promoting its health and future. Broadly, we do this through our four committees. And I also wanted to give you um, an updated list of our board of directors. Uh, Derek Andrews is serving, pardon me, that's a typo, her name is Derek Andrew. Uh, she is our new board president. She works at Classic Community Bank. Tiffany Butler has been on our board for several years and was 
the instigators of the renaissance of the organization. Misha Cameron Laddick of Street 14 is a new board member, as is Christina Carey of Pilot House Distilling. <coughs> Greg Cross of Northwest Lending and Pete Gimmery are also board members. Norma Hernandez of Clatsop County um, Public Health Department, I believe. The Public Health. Pardon me, yes, thank you. Um, we also have Julie Kovach, who is the Communications Director of the Classic Community College. She's our secretary, Daryl Moore. Uh, Hazen, Hills, Hazen Hills Software is a new and returning board member of ours. Patsy Ozer, everybody's favorite teacher librarian, um, is our vice president. Jeremy Towsey French is a new board member from Reverly Cider Works. And of course, our president emeritus is Dulcie Taylor, who is still engaged with the organization. And Brett Estes, our city manager, serves in an ex officio capacity. Um, so as I mentioned, we are a Main Street community, and that means we are a volunteer-led organization. We have four committees, the first of which is our design committee, which is kind of AKA a beautification committee. One of their ongoing projects is the historic glass tile uh, matching grant program. So when you see, for example, in front of Carruthers, they have light wells into the chair wall, and we provide um, historically appropriate uh, purple glass tiles. We cover the labor due to a volunteer behind me, thank you Mr. Merritt, um, and half the cost of the materials to replace those. So last year we replaced 41 of those. Um, we also home Mitch's Witches in the fall, in October, for some Halloween spirit. We're also very excited that we had a volunteer Sonder car help us refurbish those this fall as uh, they do get the beginning of our storm season and always have a fun ride. Um, I'm going to skip down to the last one and say that we had new downtown banners for the month of August recognizing the Coast Guard because we are an American Coast Guard city. Uh, the design committee is the group that manages all of the downtown banners. Um, for example, uh, the Pride Celebration banners, um, the Story Music Fest the rest of those. Um, of course, this group is also leading the 13th Street Alley Activation Project. This is our 13th Street Alley between 12th and 14th. Uh, we have hung lanterns. There was a, an instance of graffiti last fall that we got some people out covering up pretty quick. And while this did not happen last year, which is what I'm updating you on, I can say that last Friday was a deadline for mural submissions for that space. And we're excited to have that review panel meeting this week to go over them. We're also very excited that this project was fully funded uh, in partnership with the city through a uh, Heritage All-Star grant that Shippo offered. We also have a promotions committee. Um, they're the folks that put on a lot of fun things in town, including the July 4th sidewalk sale, the downtown trick-or-treat, which you see pictures of on the bottom. Um, that downtown trick-or-treat is probably the most full you will ever see the sidewalks here. It was incredible to see all of the, the families out and about, the shopkeepers in the doorway handing out candy. Uh, this group also works on all of our holiday festivities. The top two pictures you'll see uh, are from the downtown lighting. On that day, <clears throat> we also do the downtown raffle, which provides somebody 300, um, about $300 and gift certificates to places to return through throughout downtown while we do their holiday shopping. And just as a note, we serve as the fiscal sponsor for the Holiday Club, previously known as the Christmas Club, which is um, the passion project of Tim and Melba O'Brien. They have been decorating downtown and greater Astoria for nearly 20 years, maybe over 20 years. Um, 
that's an incredible undertaking to have dozens of volunteers here in the storage space and um, a whole lot of grit to get that done, rain or shine. Our Biz Dev Committee is also fabulous. Uh, one of the things that we do with that committee is we do welcome walkabouts. We have 26 new businesses or businesses that had newly relocated into downtown last year. So we have volunteers go out with flowers, information about downtown, resources that small businesses might need, just to make sure they know that they have a someone on their side. This group also presents NED Talks. NED Talks stand for Novel Efforts Downtown. It is our attempt at continuing education with hyper-local topics that are relevant specifically to our small businesses. Last fall, we presented our Experience Enhancement NED Talk. We actually had it on the stage at Liberty Theater to talk about their ongoing projects and uh, how small businesses can enhance the experience of visitors and locals from sidewalks to storefronts uh, to even possibly online transactions. Another great project of this group is Project Storefront. You might have noticed um, art installations going into vacant spaces downtown. The most recent to be done was um, Lamb and Kestrel put together from highlights, put together an installation in the old Columbia Travel Building. The picture you're seeing on the bottom is from the Norblad, uh, which is a very cool installation that took an old mural tied that in with these new lights that were created um, by artists in town as volunteers and creates this incredible looking glass into uh, what otherwise would be a vacant storefront. Uh, we have two volunteer leagues on that. Michelangelo and Sandra Carr have been fantastic. They've engaged with over 22 artists to create you know, visual displays in currently seven storefronts with more uh, actively being worked on right now. We have um, the ADHDA Oregon Outreach Committee. This is um, occasionally more of an interior-looking committee. They make sure that we are doing business in an upright manner. Also manages our membership campaign and looks to recognize uh, businesses and individuals in downtown that go above and beyond. So I'd like to point out at the Oregon Main Street Revitalization Awards this year, we took home three awards. Henry uh, Shoes got Retailer of the Year. This was actually created just for Gibri Shoes uh, because Pete interacts with the community in so many different ways that uh, having a long relationship with the organization, they thought that that was something that would be appropriate. Good to go, got new business of the year. <clears throat> and Moe's Chowder got a best adaptive reuse for their work on Overwater Home here. This fall, we also hosted the 17th annual, I do believe, Pacific Northwest Brew Cup. Uh, this happens the last full weekends of September each year. Uh, we were very happy to be back at what we consider our home location near the Barbara Maritime Center. We over 3,500 attendees over three days. Um, join us for beer sampling, live music, um, wine, family activities. Uh, it's just a really great time. One of the things that we focused on this year was rebranding Sunday. Um, we turned that into a family Sunday fun day, and we saw um, a remarkable increase in attendance on that day. Probably, um, we would easily say three or fourfold because this is a community event, we don't charge admission. So it can be harder to tell, but I will say our entire committee looked out at what we were seeing on Sunday, and it was a great atmosphere, and we were very happy with how it turned out. And we also want to point out that we have over 
225 mostly local volunteers for this project. Um, it's not only good for our fermentation sector and good bring-in visitorship, but our local folks really still enjoy this event, find it fun to participate in, and bring your friends and family too. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is um, some work that we did in October. Um, back in 2013, with the city's help, the ADHDA commissioned a building block study from an urban strategist named Michelle Reeves. Um, from that study, some incredible projects have happened, like the streetscaping in downtown, and now the Uniontown Reborn project was one of the recommendations out of that study to make sure the entrances, both east and west of town, were engaging and um, engaging. Um, so we brought Michelle back five years later to give us a check on how we were doing on the building block study, and then also take our community through a bit of a visioning Session. And so we brought 65 people with us that day, and we did an exercise wherein everybody got to say uh, what I like, what I would love to see for Astoria, and, and, and what I really would love to see if, you know, time and money weren't an issue. If we all got to live in that world, it would be great. Um, so this is what I like about Astoria, and, and these things that you see here about walkability, about having good restaurants to go to, seeing people you know, having a community, walking along the riverwalk, enjoying the architecture, these are the things that we see as assets that need protecting and enhancing. And you'll see that across much of our work from glass tiles to alleyway ties back to these, but we are taking it to heart because this is what attracts people to our incredible place. Um, and this is uh, our board president working in her small group on the right. Um, and this is a breakdown of what historians wish they could have. Uh, they understand that, you know, maybe we don't have enough money to, to make something happen or we don't have enough space or something like that. But these are the issues that um, people came up with. There was not prompting or, and it wasn't multiple choice. This is straight out of people's hearts and minds. And you'll see uh, the bigger chunks include parking, lighting and landscaping, walkability and transportation, business diversification, vacancies and homelessness issues. Um, so we looked at this, cogitated on a little bit because we do uh, engage in most of these topics. And after this, we decided that what we needed to do was after we took uh, the general public, everybody was invited to our, our, our meeting with Michelle Reeves, and we said we probably need to do a membership study to dive into some of these issues before we engage fully. And we did that this January. Um, it was a very short survey. We wanted to be concise. It went out to about 100 members. Um, and these are the results. We asked our constituents and members where we should focus our efforts over the next one to three years. Um, you'll see that there were two standout issues. Um, issues revolving around homelessness, along with business diversification and vacancy remediation. Uh, also, the third choice that was above the others, which all received relatively low numbers, uh, was about walkability, parking, and increasing transportation options. Uh, we also wanted to know, in regards to walkability, if people felt that it was safe to walk downtown, because we often receive um, concerns about the status of our sidewalks and also about uh, large trucks, 
logging trucks, stuff like that. But we were we were happy to see that 80% of people actually felt that downtown was a safe place to walk. However, we also had 80% of people have safety concerns about downtown. And that was one of the things that we wanted to parse out uh, between walkability and maybe other issues. And so we asked question number three. If you did think that there were safety concerns, what, what could you be more specific? And so, <coughs> Um, you'll notice that this is not add up to 100% because we did allow people to choose multiple answers. Um, and most people found that they were most concerned after dark and due to the transient populations. Um, so with, yes, do we have a question from the council? No, you flipped past one. Oh, I actually went back. Um, because I, I, I did want to stop here. Um, and invite questions about our volunteer work uh, or the results of our membership survey. How many people were surveyed? 100 people were invited and just under half replied. And these were all downtown uh, association members? Correct. Okay. And so that's not strictly for businesses. We have, we have residents downtown and residents of Astoria, okay. uh, even businesses, for example, the hospital is a member, but not necessarily the district. Okay. So only half responded? Yes, which I would say is about typical for a survey. Okay. Um, so, awesome. Uh, one of the other projects ADHDA has undertaken uh, is a parking survey. Nothing as big as a parking study that has been done in the past, but we wanted to just do a couple updates. Um, in talking with Jeff Harrington, the Director of Public Works, we learned that uh, an occupancy survey should be done about every five years. It had been six years since one was undertaken, most recently in the transportation systems plan. Um, we also wanted to take a recommendation from a previous community development director, uh, Todd Scott, had recommendations in his parking <coughs> survey that we wanted to take out and go ahead and, and get the information on that. Um, so I, I will ask for a little bit of forgiveness. We have a draft from the contractor that we hired to help us with this. And while I went to do some more in-depth conversations on some of those things, we have found um, different questions to ask and, and things that we wanted to investigate further before we publish them. But I did want to give you the overview of two of our major questions in the scope of work. And one was the occupancies survey or, or uh, count, so to speak. So again, this was most recently done about six years ago, and it was our intent to take the same survey area and the same uh, tactics and repeat that and see the change over time. And so what you'll see here is <clears throat> from um, a few Fridays in July, all with sunny weather, which was, again, uh, a repeating of the methods of the first study. Uh, we have three snapshots of downtown parking. Uh, this is a snapshot at about 9 a.m. You'll see that most parking is available. The code that you're looking at here is green, is less than 55% full, um, almost worrisome at this point if, you're, if, if you are regularly at that capacity downtown. In the morning, we're not worried about it. Um, yellow is worse than that, pardon me while I, represents 55 to 70 percent 
orange 70 to 80 and then red is over 85 and red is considered constrained where we would start to worry about something if we saw this district-wide. So this is the morning shot. This is midday. Uh, you'll see different areas coming up and you might be able to guess where they are. You can see in the upper left in the uh, northwest corner where Bowie Beer is. Um, as constrained parking near 14th and commercial, which is the traditional kind of hub and part of downtown between 12th and 14th, <coughs> but you'll notice we still have lots of green, especially on the peripheries. Then as you might expect, the busiest part of the day, this was taken between about four and six. Uh, we did have volunteers walking large stretches uh, to get these counts so it's not one person taking you know, four hours and not getting a good snapshot. But you can see right here exactly where kind of the nightlife happens in Astoria, the Liberty Theater, uh, all the way up to Albatross, kind of our dining and entertainment districts. Um, you will also notice though that if you are willing to walk, you can get to a green area pretty quickly. The other issue or the other question that we wanted answered from this study was the recommendation from Todd Scott, which was to inventory the private parking lots that we have in town and see if we can lease those spots to employees or business owners or somebody that is really regularly downtown. Um, what we discovered is that we actually have really good adoption of that type of idea already. Um, I believe that we have found Forgive me that it is not in here, but we do have a, a map of the parking lots that are available. But of the private lots that folks are willing to lease, there's only about six spots that are not already leased. Um, so we were hoping to find some capacity there. We really didn't. Um, the spots that are available are near the Museum of Whimsy and down near the Labor Temple. Um, so they're in good locations, but um, I'd actually say we're pretty happy to see that our private parking is being used well for the local population. There are several lots in town that we had wondered about, uh, but we did find that there were corporate policies that disallowed that type of arrangement to be made, for example, after hours at a bank. Um, they have just, uh, the banks here are, are, are friendly with our, our parking population, but they aren't able to engage in a, in a full-on leased arrangement uh, for those spots. And so, um, I will say, this is kind of an overview of the parking report. There will be uh, a final product, hopefully within the next month. We found some interesting things that we wanted to investigate more. Um, in particular, a type of ride-hailing service that would not be Uber or Lyft. There are examples in the rest of the country that have um, similar concepts, different business practices. Uh, we've also reached out to uh, the Sunset Empire Transportation District regarding recommendations. Uh, because, of course, as you can see, while parking isn't um, possibly as dire as some people feel that it is, we do believe that if we continue to develop downtown, fill our empty storefronts, create uh, more reasons for people to live and play downtown, we will see parking continue to become necessary, become more necessary, to become um, more competitive possibly. And the solutions for that cannot be to build more parking spaces because we do not have them. One of the things we did research in 
the parking survey was the cost of building a parking garage, which is estimated um, by the Seaside Convention Center when they were uh, going through their due diligence. Um, in 2017, they have a quote for $20,000 of parking stall, which would be a $5 million uh, building to build uh, 300 parking spaces. At that price, they decided that they needed to put that on the back burner and consider it later. It was just too cost prohibitive. And also for our situation with parking currently being free but timed in some areas, there are many steps that you would have to it would be recommended that you would take before investigating a, a, a parking structure further. So I'm sure that people have questions about parking. So, uh, yeah, I'm just hoping that you can share uh, all your survey results with us electronically. Can you? Sure. Yes. So we can back up on the further. Absolutely. Years ago, when I was a member of what was originally the ADA, the Historian Downtown Association, um, we used to, um, or the, maybe it was the city, I'm not sure how it worked, but employees were not allowed to park in the core of downtown. Is that still the case? That is correct. Um, I, I uh, was stressed, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that that code went in about 1989. Um, and so we have actually been working on enforcing those regulations for the last 15 months uh, with the community outreach officer. Okay. And while our timelines did not match up to do a before and after occupancy survey, I can say as somebody that you know comes in and out of downtown at least six days a week, um, it's, it's remarkable, particularly around the lunch hour, the difference in available parking now that we have uh, changed the habits of employees and building owners to park outside of the district during timed hours, which are fairly minimal. They're from about 9.30 to 4. And Mayor, if I may just add on to that. Um, as Ms. Heath indicated, the Downtown Association has been um, employing what they refer to as a community outreach officer uh, for yeah. you know, about the past year and a half. Um, this uh, came as a change uh, whereby uh, several years ago um, the police department once um, had a parking control officer um, in the downtown core um, as a way uh, to be able to do, I guess, a couple things. To be able to provide um, enforcement um, that was maybe more in keeping with, uh, you know, the more of a friendly approach uh, to um, downtown parking enforcement. This is a way to be able to have um, the, the parking, the uh, community outreach officer deputized as an official officer. However, you know, they were also able to be someone on the street to be able to give information to, if someone was there and, and had, uh, you know, to, to maybe have just that, that friendlier approach. Uh, the other thing I would say is it had significant cost savings to the city of Astoria as well, um, in that um, the uh, Astoria Downtown Historic District Association receives promote Astoria funds uh, to be able to pay for the community outreach officer rather than general funds, uh, you know, coming from the, uh, you know, from the, the city of Astoria's general fund itself. Good. Yeah, well, thank you, sir, for that. Uh, 
that report, and I'm really looking forward to the, the complete complete parking survey. Uh, it, it just keeps in the, this busy time for the city with a lot of focus on development. As you know, it's a big question. It is, and I think that the way that we need to approach this going forward is uh, transportation alternatives. I will say that um, seeing the capacity that we have uh, on a sunny day, on you know before weekends, we are at a point where at this time we don't feel that there is a parking problem. Saying that out loud on the record is a little terrifying. So I, you know, twice a day when I'm walking downtown, I say, if I was driving right now, could I find a parking space? And almost always I can visually see one. There has been one time that I as an individual couldn't find a parking space, and that was at 5 o'clock when the Regatta Water Parade was starting. And so one of the things that we need to look at, um, even as an organization ourselves that we're looking at, is when we have these events, what kind of transportation options come with an event which creates an acute parking problem as opposed to your typical day-to-day -day business activities. So um, it's been fascinating to do this study. Um, I, I do apologize that it is not uh, fully prepared tonight as we've gone back and have more conversations. They have led to another conversation which led to another interesting idea. And uh, we look forward to presenting the final product to you too. Great. We can have a good, robust conversation about uh, parking as a whole. And I, th I think you're right. I, th I think that, um, especially in the non-peak times, there is always pretty much a, a place to park. And I think a lot of times people are feeling inconvenience when they can't park in front of the place where they're going. Uh, that's just the way it is. I always find parking within walking distance at this point in time, except in the, again, the high impact times. Mm -hmm. and, and those are points of concerns, and, and summers are, are just becoming that impact times stretching out through the days and, and, and through the season too. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if we may not be able to come up with all the solutions, but at least we can come to an understanding. And I have found it very helpful to have, you know, real information about facts on the ground and, and real numbers that have been previously uh, possibly a little bit guesstimated regarding, you know, the private <clears throat> parking spaces and what might be available there or not. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, would, I would take your side on this one uh, to say that the, the words people are scared to say in public. <laughs> we don't have a parking problem. We have an expectation problem or a walking problem. That with the exception of, I, I want to be sure we have enough parking spaces for with people with handicap stickers in their vehicles who can't walk a couple blocks. But other than that, I, I've never had a problem yeah. finding a spot any time of day within a couple blocks, even at the peak time. So sure. there is an expectation, I think, that people have, especially maybe if they lived here 20 years ago, and my understanding when the economy was not doing nearly as well as it is now, that you could park in front of the location you want to visit. But uh, you know, another way to look at uh, Parking being tight is that the local economy is doing very well. If the economy is not doing well, you'll have plenty of parking, but you really don't want that. We want the economy to be thriving, and that might mean you have to walk two blocks from your car. Absolutely. That just, um, it, it, it brings up two things, which one is um, a rule in retail, which is you need to be careful not to underprice what you have because people will be afraid to buy it. If you were driving through downtown Astoria and you saw no one parked, you'd be like, maybe I shouldn't stop here. <laughs> Um, and then the second was um, in the course of taking on uh, the community outreach officer and parking regulation, I've learned a lot about parking. 
Thank you, Chief Jeff, for helping me with that. Um, and anybody with a handicap placard or a driver's license plate uh, can park in any spot downtown without time restrictions. So that does provide some flexibility if people know about those regulations. So Yeah, and I, I was really glad to hear that you're exploring some ride-sharing possibilities. So whether it's not Uber or Lyft or some other company, I mean, I, I've had several people tell me that they would, they would very happily use a service like that, whether it's for parking issues or whether it's because they want to go out and have a few drinks. Uh, if people that are going out at night to have a few drinks, especially during the peak summer weekends, would take Lyft or something like that and they come home, they're not wasting a parking spot and they're not going to get a DUI, so I'm all in favor of that. The, the organization that we've been talking with is actually a nonprofit out of Austin, Texas. Um, anybody can recall about two years ago, Uber and Lyft were uh, jostling with the local governments about background checks. Uh, and the like, and the city there said, if you don't want to play by our rules, you are welcome to find success elsewhere. And for about six months, they were not in existence, and a company, a nonprofit organization, actually sprang up called Ride Austin. And so we've been talking with them, and there's some issues, but it's certainly not something that we couldn't see come to town that benefits everybody. And also, thank you for uh, looking up Seaside's estimate they got on the parking garage and get that comment frequently from people why don't we build a parking garage and my answer is i think they're really expensive and five million dollars is pretty expensive i don't think the community would go for a five million dollar bond measure and that would be the only way it could be built unless we had an arrangement with a private company to uh to do something where they kept all the, all the money from it but i just don't i don't see that as a viable option i don't know what my fellow counselors feel about that i certainly don't and, and i think something that um Something that came up repeatedly in this research was that to have a viable paid parking garage that you might look at amortizing out over however many years to pay back for it doesn't really succeed unless you are charging for parking uh, elsewhere. And I, I'd be willing to bet there are a lot of people that want to put the meters back on commercial and Duane, although we are looking at what that would cost, just so it's in the report. I think we should look at it so that it's an option on the table that we can consider or make a conscious decision one way or the other. Regarding the first part of your presentation, before the parking, just for ADHDA in general, thank you. And to all the ADHDA board members and volunteers in the room, thank you very much for all you do for the community. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, reports of counselors. <laughs> Councilor Herman. Sure, I just first do want to thank uh, Ms. Heath and all of the volunteers as well with the ADHDA. I'm really, uh, one of the things I was really pleasantly surprised about when I moved back to town in 2016 was that the ADA, or Old Astoria Downtown Association, was not only still around, it was actually thriving in a new uh, iteration as the ADHDA, and the organization does so much for our community not just our downtown, but I mean, it, it, um, it, it's just a, a great organization. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the mural that is chosen for the 13th Street Alley. That's, I know it's gonna be beautiful. Um, a week ago Sunday, I, I attended a packed town hall of our state representative, Tiffany Mitchell, her first town hall. She told us what she's been doing in her first couple of months in office, and. She also spent quite a bit of time fielding questions on topics as diverse as uh, poor funding for education in our state, uh, cap and trade, the cap and trade bill, 
also known as the Clean Energy Jobs Bill. And at the very end, she fielded um, a couple comments from two young mothers holding their babies, or in one case, pushing a toddler in a stroller, opposing a bill that would require parents to vaccinate their children to go to school. Um, comments which I might say, or I might add, elicited some booze in the audience. So it was an interesting uh, meeting. And I asked her about a bill that would ban a community such as Astoria from setting any restrictions on vacation rentals. And she said, as far as she knows, that bill is dead in the water. So, and I was trying to find some information about it online today, but I, I didn't look hard enough because I couldn't find anything. So that's probably a good indication that it is no longer around. Um, the other thing I've done, among others, over the past couple of weeks is I sat in on two subcommittees, uh, city budget subcommittees, that are making recommendations for providing grants to about 20 community organizations. So those include social service organizations, as well as arts and cultural organizations. I served with my fellow counselor, Tom, as well as um, Andy Davis, who is in the audience. Um, and it's a really, it's quite a privilege to be able to decide um, how to dole out about $120,000, I may be overestimating that a little, um, close enough, um, to these organizations. And our recommendations at this point are just that. They go to the city budget committee next, next month, and then I believe the city council in June. Um, but anyway, it's a great, great position to be able to be someone who's sort of giving out that much money. Something I've never been able to do before. Mr. <laughs> thank you. Um, just a couple things real quick. Uh, I had a uh, Meet the Council event last Saturday morning at uh, Three Cups of Coffee, which is every third Saturday at 9 p.m. Um, it, it was a great conversation, just too few people. And I would really like to encourage more people to come, and I will keep asking because I want the feedback. Uh, I, I love hearing uh, what people have to say uh, on any subject. And uh, I'm mostly there to listen and to answer the questions that I can't answer. Um, I also went to the uh, uh, Classic County uh, Board of Commissioners meeting, this last, uh, last uh, meeting that they had. And just a couple things to note there that I wanted to make sure people were aware of uh, that I think are really great. And, and one of them is that they, they're finally started on the household hazardous weight, waste facility up at the uh, transfer station. So it's going to be a facility that's going to be open six, seven, eight times a year where you'll be able to drop off your hazardous materials from batteries, uh, uh, antifreeze, uh, anything that you don't want to throw down the toilet or put in the landfill, they'll be there to pick it up. And I think that's a really important service uh, right now. It's, you know, a lot of the stuff goes down our wastewater and, and ends up in our treatment system. Uh, and that's just bad news, or it ends up in the inside of the road. Who knows where a lot of this stuff goes, or in the landfill. So they've been working on this for years. I'm glad to see it coming. So be looking forward to that to open up possibly as soon as June. Um, again, they've started work out there. And the other thing is that they are looking at a, a, an ordinance for tobacco retail licensing. 
And um, it was the first I'd heard of that, and I think it's a, it sounds like a, a great idea. What they want to do, they, they gave some really, really tough statistics about the use of uh, vape. Uh, <coughs> I, was, the one in particular was the Juul vape uh, delivery system that teenagers are using. And the thing that's unique about it, there's a couple things. Uh, the use of vape product has, amongst teenagers, over the last three years, has gone from something like, I didn't write down the numbers, but it was something like 15% to 35%. Uh, and that's, that's extraordinary. Uh, they talked about how they got a hold of this, and, and a lot of it was from retail. And one of the problems is that the state is the one that does enforcement for 21 and under buying of tobacco products. And with it, through this licensure, they would collect fees that would allow them to do better enforcement to help stop uh, teenagers from buying from uh, any of these outlets. So I think that's really important. Just another little point they made with this jewel one is that they're, it's not one of those you see these clouds of smoke that come out, not smoke, but vape that comes out. Well, the jewel, there is no cloud. And apparently these kids are actually using them in class because there's no odor and there's no cloud. So I think it sounds like a serious problem. I'm really glad that they're taking it on. Uh, the other thing too is that I, uh, we had a work session this last week, just last week, just last week. and uh, we had, again with the schools, we had uh, Superintendent Hoff come in and talk about uh, the success they had with the bonds, bond sale, and uh, it sounded like they just got a hell of a deal, the rating for the school is A1. Um, they got such a good turnout in buying these bonds that uh, Mr. Ozer can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but he showed a dime, so it was going to be a dollar per thousand on your taxes. Because of the, the good buy, it's going to be 90 cents on the thousand. So and somebody said, told me today it was actually 15 cents. It might uh, be. We, we estimate 92 cents. 92 it's cents. So it's changed every year. Yeah. So anyway, it was really successful, and it's good to hear that. The other thing that may have been that work section was a discussion with Jim Knight from Port. Um, he was here to talk about some of the issues that the port's having, and we've all seen that in the news, and I think that uh, he was able to uh, help us start to get an understanding about what the issues that the port's confronting right now and the challenges in front of him. So we really appreciated him coming to the council and, and talking to us about that. And uh, at that, I'll let it go. Thank you. Yes, well, some fun stuff. I learned on March 9th that a story is about to have its own opera company. The Cascadia Chamber Opera is moving here from Eugene. Uh, they've been operating there for years. Now they're going to be here, uh, principally because two of the principals have moved here. So the opera company is coming with them. Uh, that night I got to attend a concert of some amazingly energetic dance at the Liberty Theater. Uh, it was pretty wonderful, but as I looked around, I think I not only was the oldest person in the theater, but probably within a several block radius. Uh, in between, I want to congratulate uh, Coast Community Radio. They had uh, what was one of their uh, most successful uh, membership drives, and I got to play a little part in that, which was fun, but it's just nice to see them doing so well. Uh, I attended a meeting on the 12th of the Conservation and Working Landscapes Community Meeting at Camp Rialea. 
And what it is, is a group of people trying to look at Oregon's landscapes more broadly and over the long term. To see what, what, how we should manage landscapes uh, on a statewide basis to have the kind of state that, that we want to have in the future. Uh, I had another nice chat about the riverfront with Steve Fick at Fishhawk Fisheries. It's becoming a continuing series. Uh, I volunteered at the Warming Center last week as it closed out its season. Uh, warm weather has arrived just in time. The funny double glasses are gone. For those of you who missed the sexy glasses I've been wearing at these meetings, uh, those are all gone thanks to the KCI Institute. And uh, lastly, this is entirely personal. I got to go to Vancouver Saturday to see a granddaughter's stellar performance and her school's production of the Liberty Project. So that's my stuff. Congratulations <laughs> to her. Uh, yeah, so we did have a very good work session with Jim Knight, and I really appreciate Jim's uh, candor and very uh, frank discussions, uh, good candid uh, comments and questions from my fellow counselors that made it a much more productive work session and we look forward to having more discussions with, uh, with Mr. Knight in the future. The port is such an important, important part of our region and the city and the port need to have great relationships at the, at the council and executive director level as we already do at the staff level. Now, I am having a Meet the Mayor event, my second one for this year, uh, next Wednesday, the 27th at 4 o'clock at the Flag Room in the library. Um, I want to make a comment about one of our parks. So my kids were grown when we moved here, and I had never really spent any time in Tapiola Park except walking, driving by it. And I, my wife and I had the good fortune to babysit two of our young grandkids last week and uh, took uh, our three-year-old granddaughter to Tapiola Park. And, that is a really, really nice playground. It's probably the nicest playground I've ever been in. Certainly had no, nothing like that when I had when my kids were at home. That's a wonderful playground. And so to whoever gets the credit for having uh, built Tapiola Park in its current the state of the playground some number of years ago, I think it was a community effort with a lot of volunteers. A lot of volunteers. Um, and to top it off, to be at the park and have this amazing river, not river view, bay. Young's Bay view of the water in Saddle Mountain is just spectacular. And then finally, uh, we're having a work session session next Thursday, the 28th. That'll be to continue uh, the council's work on our council goals and discuss uh, possibility of having a vision statement or not. All right. Next on the calendar is uh, any changes? Are there any changes to the agenda? No changes. Consent calendar. Uh, items on the consent calendar are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion unless a member of the council requests to have an item considered separately. Have any council members request to have an item? I haven't received any requests. Okay. And uh, members of the community may also have an item removed if they contact the city manager by 5 p.m. today. Any request? No citizen request. <clears throat> All right, then. In that case, may we have a motion on the consent calendar? I move we approve the consent calendar as presented. Second. And uh, roll call, Ms. Brooks. Uh, Councilor Herman. Yes. Councilor Brown. Aye. Councilor Brown. Aye. Aye. Regular agenda items. All agenda items are open for public comment following deliberation by the council. Rather than asking for public comment after each agenda item, I'll ask that audience members raise their hands if they want to speak to an item, and you'll be recognized. Uh, in order to respect everyone's time, comments are limited to three minutes. Item 8A, public hearing and first reading unlawful transfer ordinance. So the city of Astoria has been experiencing an increase in people making transfers of goods or monies between pedestrians and motor vehicles on the vehicular portion of the roadway, which would create uh, traffic concerns. 
uh, traffic safety concerns, that is. Motor vehicle drivers who are focused on non-traffic distractions are not attentive to other drivers, pedestrians, changing traffic, signage, and lights. And the drivers who are looking for property inside their vehicle and are handing items to pedestrians are not attentive to these issues. Therefore, a prohibition on the transfer of items from a motor vehicle to a pedestrian has been proposed to council to address these concerns. And so tonight it's recommended that city council hold a public hearing on this matter and consider holding a first reading of the ordinance. I would note that uh, Police Chief Spaulding uh, is available to answer any specific questions um, as well as Jeff Harrington, our Public Works Director. Would anyone like to uh, address this before I open the public hearing or hold your comments till after? I just want a quick, quick clarification on here. Um, so the, the person, if we pass this ordinance, the person who would be uh, liable for the fine on this would be the driver of the vehicle? Yeah, which chief one should come on. Okay. Clarifying. Councilor Brown, Jeff Spalding, your police chief. Uh, first thing I'd like to emphasize is the focus of this is, is not enforcement, it's education. And so that would be our goal if this were to pass, if council were to approve this. If they were to approve it, the way the ordinance right now is written is it would apply to the driver of the vehicle, the passenger of the vehicle, or protect the pedestrian too that's receiving the goods. So all of them could be, or so everybody's responsible in this particular? They could be, but highly unlikely that we would issue a citation in that scenario. Again, it's, it's a tool that we have because we're unable to address the complaints and concerns that we have now from individuals that are calling us on this concern. Yeah, because again, my one concern is that, again, we're, we're probably talk, talking about homeless individuals that are the recipients more often than not, and uh, imposing additional burdens on them by fines and whatnot, I, I would have a little bit of a problem with. Right, and, and I understand that, and we would too, and, and again, it, we would um, use that tool as a very last resort. We're also looking at the fines, several other cities, there's eight other cities that I'm aware of in the state that have a similar ordinance, they go anywhere from 50 to $1,000. We opted on the very, very low end of the scale. Uh, again, we had to have some fine in there, and my goal is that we would not be issuing citations only as a last resort, and we have to repeat warnings and people don't keep are we um, are we talking about, for lack of a better term, panhandling? Well, I, I think we I think it's important we make the distinction because panhandling is a, a constitutionally protected right, and we're not prohibiting panhandling. All we're saying is that you cannot transfer goods in certain locations where it's dangerous, where someone's in the roadway and it's backing up traffic and create issues like road rage and, and those types of issues. Also, it has the potential to take a pedestrian out of an area of safety into a roadway where they could be struck by a car. And some of the locations that we've been, you know, having the, most of our concerns at are very heavily congested roadways. Some of them are very, uh, I would like to say somewhat dangerous intersections such as Marine Drive by the McDonald's and the KFC further down and also the Safeway. So uh, we're not prohibiting panhandling. We can't do that. It just says, you know, you legally park your car. If that's the activity you want to do as a person in a car or as a person receiving, it's just we're being very careful about certain locations. 
Do you have some ideas for how you'll educate the public? Well, signage, of course, is one thing. Um, we, of course, will work with our local media, our social media, and get the word out that way. And then if we observe the violations, our officers will simply give warnings for an extended period of time. And then, of course, the signage. We post signage in the real high traffic areas, the places right now where we're experiencing a lot of the concerns, again, like Safeway, McDonald's, and those areas. We would post the, the signs like the other cities have done. And of the, uh, out of some of the eight cities that I have contacted, they say the ordinance has been very effective in, in minimizing these traffic issues in these locations. Okay, thank you. I have a similar question, so I'll try. Okay, I'll open the public hearing now. If anyone would like to comment on this issue, if you could come to the microphone, state your name and address, and you'll have three minutes. Please come up. Thank you, Chair and Council Members. Uh, my name is Todd Toby. I am the owner of McDonald's Restaurant here in Astoria. I also own and operate seven other, or six other um, McDonald's restaurants all on the coast. Um, it, panhandling has been a really big problem for us. Our customers complain about it. Our employees complain about it. They feel unsafe. Um, we're not talking about the homeless here. We're talking about a separate um, segment of people that are transient, and they move from town to town to town, and they and they they they, they do this. My point is this: not not to discriminate um, how people want to live their lives or anything like that, but we had a really big problem. I also own McDonald's in Lincoln City, and. Um, we had a really big problem with people panhandling, and uh, they're all transient. Um, they're not; they weren't locals that people knew and kind of knew. Like we, we have our local, you know, homeless people here that have been here for years. We know who they are. Everybody kind of takes them under their wing and, and, and tries to help them. This is not the person I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about the transients, and uh, I've done a lot of homework to figure out. I've lived here for 30 years. My kids all graduated from Astoria High School. Um, and and it, it, it's become a problem. It's become a problem in a lot of cities. And now it's migrating to the smaller towns like, like we have here. And uh, so, let's try to make a long story short. Uh, Lincoln City uh, <coughs> imposed this ordinance. And I, of course, I didn't know that they were doing it, but you know, because I, we were one of the hot spots in town, you know, where, where, where this was happening, and people were getting freaked out and upset, and, and uh, they put this sign up in my it, right in my yard, and uh, the panhandling just kind of went away. It still happens a little bit, but um, nothing like like here. Like I said, I, I, I own seven different restaurants in seven different towns, all on the coast. We're all similar communities. And um, this is, it's become a real problem. You know, people roll up their windows when they go through my drive-through. And you know, they, 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 don't, they don't want to be encountered by these people. They're not friendly people. I'm not talking about the homeless people. I'm not talking about, um, you know, mentally, Challenge people. 
not talking about you know, a veteran with, uh, you know, with, 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 what do you call it? Um, PTSD. Yeah. PTSD. PTSD. Um, I'm not, this is not what we're talking about. This is a subset of people, and they're very aggressive people. And I don't think this town wants to be a town where these people are wanting to come to to do what they do. I'm not trying to discriminate. Um, they all they, they have a separate agenda. They all network together. It's a movement that's going on right now. Kind of like in the 60s, I believe. I've done a lot of research on it. Thank God for Google, right? Um, and it's a movement that's going on, and there's these transits, and they just move from town to town until they wear out their welcome, and then they move on to the next town. And um, we have a problem in this town. And this simple ordinance, this simple ordinance is really just a deterrent. I don't think the police department's going to start writing tickets, arresting people, or perp walking them off into their car, or anything like that. that I don't believe that's what's going to happen. But it becomes a deterrent. Um, which has been very effective in Lincoln City. I can only speak to that because that's that's where I know that we have a similar uh, ordinance. Um, well, well, thank you. I, I noticed our, our alarm didn't go off, but uh, the time the time well, is. Thank up. you, but thank you for thank you very much. All right. Are there other comments? Please. Yes, please. 
My name is Nell Moffat, and I think you know that I'm an advocate for the homeless, and I support this uh, ordinance. I, <clears throat> I enjoy the way it's written in terms of education and uh, the, the um, leniency or the, the working with people about that. Personally, I have a policy that I, I do not give money to um, homeless, panhandlers, anything like that. And I haven't encountered um, this aggressiveness, and, and uh, so I'm not personally affronted by it. Um, but I, I do think it's a, a sound policy. And I've also heard um, at least one member of the homeless population say that these are not local people and they're not homeless. And they uh, have expensive trucks or something that they, they have parked somewhere. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I, I just don't think that that's a way of solving the problem, even if they are homeless. So uh, thank you for this policy. Thank you. Sarah Lee, he's still the executive director of the Downtown Association, and really addresses PO Box 261. Um, we're in support of this ordinance, particularly as it deals with public safety on the streets. Um, our downtown core is both um, a highly congested area with uh, many pedestrians, and there's also a highway. And so you can often see people's thought processes as you watch them drive down the street. Um, I think in particular this, this protects against the road rage that Chief Spalding brought up. Often if you see someone uh, two cars back from a light where somebody's trying to turn and there's a pedestrian in the crosswalk, that car that can't see the pedestrian might get frustrated, speed around, go through a yellow light, who knows what happens after that. But when we're not adhering to uh, the typical patterns of, of driving on highways and on major thoroughfare streets. It creates a lot of friction in this type of transaction where one car is parked in uh, a, a space made for driving, not for parking. Um, a lot of frustration can happen from that and unintended consequences. So we see this as an excellent clarification of pretty typical practices that already exist and a nice tool for the police department to use to make sure that it's safe whether you're walking or Thank you. Any other comments? Okay, the public hearing is now closed. Any comments from council? Well, I'm really happy to hear from a few people who have spoken some consensus on an issue regarding this. I mean, so, um, I too think that it seems like a nice tool to help. Um, I'm with uh, I'm with you on on giving money to anybody who's panhandling because the idea is that I want, I'll support agency to help individuals, but um, I know that unless it's the only way through. It's not a good policy for me. So I think that this, and I went by McDonald's today, and I've noted, certainly it's obvious, but today I, there, were, there were four young people sitting there at that drive-through, and I thought, it's just bad for business. It's not good for anybody. That is a really dangerous place. That is a bad intersect, you know, people trying to come out on the streets there, especially trying to make left-hand turns out of McDonald's right there. 
which is another issue that we need to uh, take on for, the, for that roadway to make that a little bit safer for people coming in and out, driving in and out of there. So anyway, uh, I'm supportive of this policy. Thank you for the comments. I would say that I heard a very wise police chief say at a, at a meeting of uh, homeless advocates and homeless people that uh, uh, the, the route we need to take is to focus on behaviors. And this is, this is a route that focuses on certain behaviors, and I think it's, it's certainly the right thing to do. I, I agree. I support the ordinance as well. I, I also do as well. And I am concerned um, if we have a group of people who appear um, who make others uh, fear for their safety downtown um, or near downtown or anywhere in town for that matter. Uh, is there a way we can educate them to know that this behavior um, is not acceptable? I, I, I mean, I, I'm not talking specifically about this ordinance, which I support, but it sounds like the problem goes is much bigger than that. And I'm not sure really how much can be done. I'm just kind of throwing that question out to you, Chief. Would you like me to answer that now? If you would, if you can. not only in the homelessness problem itself, but in aggressiveness homelessness. And we are now tracking that separately just to see if what we believe is it truly accurate. Um, we are getting complaints. We just had another call today where an individual was uh, felt very empowered and it was verbally confrontational with the police officer at the call, and we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, we do have limited ability to control certain behaviors, and a lot of it's constitu constitutionally protected activity, but at the same time, um, there are certain behaviors that I know none of us will accept, and, and on some level, you know, everybody needs to be held accountable to some extent, and that's why we're looking for more tools. And so, um, I'm doing some additional research, aside from I'm reading the whole book on homelessness, I've also reached out to other chiefs throughout the state. We're looking at putting together a, a group of other chiefs to brainstorm and see what's working well in other communities. And at some point, I, I believe, uh, Mr. City Manager, if uh, we talk about having uh, something that we would like to bring back to the council and discuss some options to explore what might be palatable for this community. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Mayor, if I may, um, there have been some discussion this last week about having an upcoming work session on this topic and we're working with the mayor to look at maybe having that uh, next month to, to touch on uh, some of these additional issues. Sounds great. So does this take a motion? Yes. All right, well I'd uh, like to make a motion to, to hold the first reading of the ordinance adding city code 6.390 relating to unlawful transfer of vehicle, vehicle uh, portion of the right of way. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Uh, Ms. Brooks, would you hold the first reading? An ordinance revising, revising ordinance 6.390 relating to unlawful transfer on vehicular portion of the right-of-way and revising ordinance 1.010 relating to penalties. Uh, 
The next item is going to be a discussion of historic preservation legislation. Mr. Estes has some material to hand out to the council, so we'll take a five-minute break. We're in recess for five minutes. Oregon is unique 
um, in that we have a process, this, which is different than I believe every other uh, state in the United States in terms of how historic properties are, are designated. And, um, and this legislation is, is uh, a way to be able to change that and maybe um, make it a bit more straightforward and, and process-wise, um, but also to provide a little more clarity in terms of, of how local um, properties are designated. Um, and um, I sit on the board of directors for a group called Restore Oregon, which is a group which has been participating on this this program, and, and John Goodberger has been asked uh, to um, be able to provide some information um, because there's some interest in terms of how does Astoria itself feel about this this uh, this type of change, and so John's going to talk about this a little, a little bit more. Great. So um, I'm wearing two hats tonight. So the first hat I'm going to wear is um, I'm the regional rep of Restore Oregon, and they have asked me to come and uh, bring this to the public so the public can have a conversation about it, and we can hopefully get some support uh, for uh, this bill. I'm also um, uh, a temporary employee for the city of Astoria, which means I get hired as needed in my title being a city historian. Uh, but as regional rep, um, the way it currently works for an inventory, and I can go through the whole inventory process in a moment, but um, the city designates an area to be inventory to look at what is in that area for historic properties. And they go through and they review and they designate X amount of buildings as being historic. At that time, the public and there's been public notices all along, but the public has, during this review period, the public can say, thank you very much, um, I don't want to be a part of this. And they can opt out of being historic. What this bill is proposing is that the historic designation would be more like a zone change. And so the neighborhood would be looked at as a whole and these designations would be looked at as a whole, and the public would come and they would have a chance to talk about uh, the validity of it, uh, the value of it, or the lack of support of it, and then the council would make a decision as a whole whether this should be a, an inventory district and whether they accept those designations. In a, in a, so that's Restore Oregon, if I might switch <laughs> to be an Astorian for a moment. In Astoria, this really has not been a big deal. Um, and it's not been a big deal in part because people generally support, there's, your choices are people generally support preservation. The city does a really good job of getting the word out and explaining it. Or frankly, people don't open their envelopes that they get from the city and they don't know that a change has occurred. Um, and so it hasn't been a big deal when we did a re-inventory of properties um, in 2013, and it included over 500 properties, not all of which, of course, were designated historic, 30 people, or 30 uh, property owners, opted out of that. Some of those property owners um, had buildings that um, were not even designated historic, but they wanted to opt out anyway. 
So um, when I spoke with the state about that, they said, those are really good numbers. You got a lot of support in Astoria. So why would you care? And I guess what I would um, hold up to you to think about is Astoria is changing and Astoria is becoming more and more popular. And as that happens, we are getting uh, other folks coming to town, developers coming to town, thinking about this uh, area. And should, for instance, I own a property and I opt out, I can sell it to a developer and that developer, developer can knock the house down, knock the building down and build this large structure as long as it meets all the other codes and start to change that neighborhood. And that's what we're seeing in Portland is that the developers have come in and changed those neighborhoods significantly. So what does that mean for Astoria? Well, frankly, the two big areas or three big areas that that would directly affect are those that haven't been inventoried in the first place. Alderbrook, the top of the, uh, you know, up near Peter Pan, and the South Slope. Why does it affect the rest of them? Because we have inventoried all of them, and this bill does not change any of that. So if you've been inventoried, if you've been designated, it doesn't change any of those, those kinds of rules. You're still historic, or you're still not historic, or you're still opted out, or whatever. It doesn't take um, uh, any change there. But from any future inventory, it would become like a zone change. So how do we even get this information in the first place? The city goes out, they get a grant from SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Office, that's, I don't know, $10,000 or something like that, and they hire some slacky like me to go out and stand in the rain and inventory these buildings all winter long. And so we will get a um, hundred or more buildings to inventory at a time. The inventory, first of all, every neighborhood gets its own history. So this history puts these buildings in context. And there's also an architectural description of what the characteristics of that neighborhood are. So this is an example of the Shiley McClure area. So it has the descriptions of the buildings, it has historic photos, it has these great charts that talk about you know, when different parts of the neighborhood develop versus other. And then you go out into the um, neighborhood and you fill out these forms. And you note changes to the buildings, stylistic characteristics of the buildings, um, and ownership details. And then you write a little history of all the buildings that you inventory, whether they are built last year or 150 years ago, you still write the history of that building. So all this information then goes with a photograph of the buildings, a little site plan of the buildings, and now I'm really glad we have reached the modern era because I hand drew every last house for hundreds of houses in this community and we now have computers, so that takes care of some of that. Then you go out, and once you've gathered all this knowledge together and you have a basis for making a judgment, you go out with this inventory form and it's a three-page inventory form. You look at architectural significance, which may be style, rarity of type, craftsmanship, and architecture of uh, the builder. You may look at integrity, looking at the original material and alterations. You may look at the setting. Uh, the uh, architectural setting, setting in the environment, 
and then the history, the person that lived there, the trends and events that occurred around that building. And each of these has different weights, and if it meets a certain number, then it could be considered historic. On things that are kind of questionable, when I've done it, um, I get the HLC to go out there and do it with me so that I have their backing. In cases where I think it's super controversial, I get you all to go out with me and understand the process so that you see what's going on so that when people come uh, to this, they understand. We also do block parties. So block parties, not really the block, but we divide these neighborhoods into sections and we invite the public in, show them pictures of the history of their neighborhood, talk about the history of their neighborhood, and show how their building might fit in with it. So they have a pretty good understanding. By the time we get to you, they have a pretty good understanding. So with all of that, it still comes down to whether um, you wish to continue with this opting out or if you wish to consider this as a zoning change. I am one week ahead of you <laughs> in understanding this bill, um, so I still have questions, and I hope that you all have questions. I hope the audience has questions so that we can um, understand this and, and make good decisions on it. And if I can also, John, one of the other things that this bill is intended to to clarify is that John mentioned that under the state's process for designating a local landmark, there is the, the opt-out provision. And that's the one thing which is different than all other states, that other states treat these as essentially zone changes. That if, if there is a district that's being, historic district that's being created, it's, it's like what we're doing with the Riverfront Vision. You know, there is a whole process that would go forward and and, uh, and people um, would provide testimony as to the creation of the, of the district um, and but in the current state statutes there's the ability for a property to opt out there is also an anomaly the anomaly is that if there is what's called a national register historic district created national register historic districts in the state of Oregon all of a sudden become local landmark districts without the opt-out provision. And so we do have people who call and contact us and said, well, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't choose to do it. Well, there is a way to be able to create these national register districts and they become local landmarks through this this other or anomaly in Oregon. In, in all other states, a national register property or a district is one of um, not of national register does not uh, trigger regulation per se on the local level it's it's of uh, noting significance within the community um, and this bill also addresses that by the by decoupling the uh, national register designation from being an automatic local landmark and saying there's one process uh, by which uh, historic districts are created. I will tell you that there has been, again, also in Portland, um, a lot of playing out where neighborhoods are trying to become uh, national register districts, uh, you know, to be able to address this. And then it creates all sorts of 
interesting controversies um, uh, there as well with, uh, I'm going to call it um, gerrymandering the rules by which uh, national districts are, are created. Um, it's in, by one property owner may all of a sudden register uh, 50 owners on that one house and they have uh, some additional say uh, in terms of, it, it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing that's happening in Portland, particularly in the East Portland uh, neighborhoods. Um, and so this is a way to be able to create one process for creation of uh, local um, landmark districts throughout the state. So uh, you create, you make Alderbrook a local landmark district, for example. And Alderbrook has a lot of historic homes, also some new homes, newer and new homes, both. So what's the impact on someone who has a one of these newer homes in Alderbrook and suddenly Alderbrook's a historic district and that person wants to do some renovations to their new homes? There's no, the city doesn't have any review of non-historic homes. Okay. So, and then what about that issue we dealt with on another issue last year where if, you're, if the house next to you is a designated historic home? Right, so that only comes with new construction. So if you own um, a 1990 house that is next to an 1890 house, the 1990 house can still do all that without review, but if they built something like a garage, that would be reviewed. And so, and what I would say to clarify that, that the interpretation in terms of what what John is talking about is not state code. That, that's local local code. That's what Astoria has chosen to do. Um, you know, under their current ordinances. So it it would impact people that have lots without a home on them that may want to build a home, and it would impact, let's say, someone has a 1960s ranch home and they decide they want to tear it down, replace it. Once they've torn it down, then they have to. And the house next door is historic. Yes, yes, that could be uh, something that would kick in. And so sometimes people who kind of, let me just put it another way, they hold their nose and I don't really want to be historic, but I'm going to be, I'm going to allow it go and be historic because I want to make sure that that empty lot next to me has something that's appropriate. Yeah, so, and <laughs> again, this is a, an Astoria rule, this adjacent that, thing. It's that not, particular, that, yes. That's not, this bill doesn't address that sort of a thing. And this bill says that they, we create this zone, historic zone. Some people can be opted out. That's why, no, currently it's, currently it's opt out. Okay, so if we establish this zone, then everybody's, the, the way the legislation apply to all homes within that zone. The way the legislation is written is that the opt-out provision currently included in state statutes for creation of a local district would, would go away. It's now treated as a local land use matter, like a zone change. And the creation, the other way to create a local landmark being the um, creation of a national register district is decoupled from that national register designation. Right now, again, there are two ways to create histor local historic districts in Oregon. One is just going through the, the regular designation processes, John said, 
and there and that process allows for a property owner to say I opt out. However, the local jurisdiction could create a National Register Historic District and that opt-out provision is not uh, is not afforded. So there are two ways to create districts in the, in the state of Oregon right now. This bill is a way to be able to say, let's create one process, and that one proce process being that um, the uh, designation is taken like a zone change through the land use process, and it decouples it from national register uh, designation. Sure, so again, the, the, question, the question is still sort of out there. So we do that, all homes in there have to abide by some... No, so if this is a historic district, yeah. <laughs> right. okay, and um, let's just say these two on the outside are historic and the two on the inside yeah. are not. Yeah. These guys currently could opt out and that's that. As this is proposing, these two guys would still, uh, if you decide to create this district, they could not opt, opt out, but it wouldn't change these two. They're okay. still non-historic or whatever. Right, so we'd still make it have this inventory of historic yeah. houses, yeah. and those would be the ones that get designated right. within that. Okay, got it. But just so I understand, because I'm a little confused. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> if the law is passed, um, people couldn't opt out of a historic district. But if you had a non-contributing home, a non-historic home, um, would you be able to tear it down? Uh, potentially. Okay, but if you had a historic home, it goes through review. You can, it goes through review. Okay, so you're only, I mean, somebody might raise the argument that you'd be taking my property rights away, but I guess in Astoria, we now would not prevent you, or uh, allow you to tear down a historic home unless there were some serious extenuating circumstances, such as the home on Alameda that was, had some serious foundational problems. Um, so this, the only difference now with what Astoria has would be people couldn't opt out. Is that During that time, they could not opt out. So again, if it's just like zoning. So we imagine if we're doing zoning for height, I think my house ought to be 55 feet, you know. <laughs> so I'm going to opt out of your zone that says it should be 28 feet. And I'm going to do what I want. You know, and, and so that, that doesn't make sense. So what they're saying is it doesn't make sense either with historic that somebody just decides that they shouldn't be designated right. and they can opt out. That's, that's the train of thought there. Okay. So I'm <laughs> I'm curious, when, when people opt out now, what is your sense of the reasons, what is their thinking generally? Um, they are um, uh, fearing review. So they fear that if I um, become a local landmark, I'm going to uh, be required to put in expensive windows or can't take out windows or something like that. So they're fearing review. They're fearing um, somebody making a judgment call on their house. Um, oftentimes, even though we try to do good education, uh, they fear things that aren't reviewed, like color, for instance, is not reviewed. <clears throat> Interiors are not reviewed. Um, and so they just fear that review, and they're fearing that it's gonna be an added expense 
Um, and they uh, also fear that those that who are, are making that judgment uh, may just kind of use their own preference. And, and so it goes down to our mayor to appoint people on the Landmarks Commission that have credentials, certain credentials. We are a certified local government, which means that we do have people that have historic background, contractor backgrounds, etc. So they do have credentials to make those decisions. It looks like they don't have some financial incentives, though, for people who are uh, in the district. Um,
So what is being asked of us tonight is if the council wants to support, write a letter, a resolution, whatever. Right. I think the, the, the question is, has come because Astoria is recognized statewide as a leader in historic preservation. And the question is coming down, what does Astoria think about this? And what is the, what's the timeline look like? And what, what's the deadline by which we need to make some sort this, of This has a number of meetings still to go throughout the state. The first meeting is next week. Right, next so. Tuesday, next week. What potentially affects a lot of property owners, and I think it would be, I would be remiss in some, you know, voting tonight to either support or not support it without giving a, a chance for property owners to come in and address the issue. I mean, it was listed on the agenda, but there was really no information to understand what it was about. So I think we would want to have a public uh, a public hearing. Okay. I, I would ask John, um, maybe you already said this, but you're a historian I respect a great deal. Um, what do you think of this? Um, I am feeling more comfortable with it, um, uh, but I still have questions, but my my questions have been more on kind of the minutia of what do the forms look like? Are they still going to be professional? Can, you know, that sort of thing. And what, what does it do to our, our, our individual buildings? At this point, what we have designated are safe. <coughs> we can continue to protect those historic things. So I lean towards this, um, but my reluctance is, is kind of I know what to expect in the current system, <laughs> and 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 not quite knowing the future and how this might be come to play, that's always scary. Right, because this would supersede yeah for any new designation yeah. of what we have. Yeah. Um, so, and are we at the moment just talking about 927? We're not talking about 927. We certainly can. Yes, <laughs> okay. But it's, if when people well, well, just just a little bit on the nine. 929 again it looks like some mitigation to help people if we choose to go that way it gives more opportunity for people to get some relief in the cost of uh, pursuing that so so 929 is a tax uh, rebate for people doing seismic work on their buildings and uh, we can do that with folks on the south excuse me on the on the north slope as it is this is focusing on what I really like. The priority is for those buildings that are uh, workforce housing um, and, uh, and all, and trying to get a, a handle on that. So it's a 35% um, tax rebate uh, for that. And this to me is a no-brainer. I'm super supportive of this. <laughs> Anything that can work with property owners to give them money to make the building safe protect people, protect the resources, to me that's a great thing to do. Right, and also have a 25% on rehabilitation costs too. Right. So, I, and, and to me that's often the big one. You know, I've, I've looked at a number of the houses around here on seismic refitting, that's a mixed bag. There are certainly those that, that need it. There are a lot of, surprising number that are actually bolted down, for instance. But it seems to me that when you end up with a historic house, you know, you want to refurbish, that's where, the, that's where it can really get expensive. You get some relief to help you do that to centerfile. So this is for uh, properties that are exclusively residential of less than three units are not eligible. But this helps us with oh, some of the larger buildings okay. in the town. Okay. Yes, we have to kind of do a baby step there. 
get their individual ones. I'm just curious, where does the money come from? Uh -huh. So believe it or not, I can actually describe a tax rebate better than the last one, all right? <laughs> so in a tax rebate, where it comes from is um, the state auctions off state tax credits and creates a pot of money. And the State Historic Preservation Office hands that money out to these projects as a rebate. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> so, un unreinforced masonry buildings. Do we have many residential buildings that are unreinforced masonry, or is this really not going to benefit anybody? Uh, that's the priority. Um, Franklin? Is the Franklin unreinforced? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> the Franklin may, may be unreinforced. Um, our friend next door, the Waldorf or the Merwin, uh, would be unreinforced for the, the masonry part of that. Um, and uh, so we think about that. Um, We've talked about what could happen with the State Hotel on Marine Drive. Right. That's yeah. another one. Okay. Timeline the same on this? Yes. I don't see any reason not to support 929. Again, the only, the only hesitation I have about 927 is if it's going to affect potentially hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of uh, homeowners in the community who don't know about this. I, I hate for them to read the paper tomorrow that we voted to take away their right to opt out. I mean, there should, should be a discussion. Right. It's, it's, and it's, I mean, it's ultimately a state decision. Right. But in terms of the question is whether or not the city would take a, a position on that. Uh, is is that something we're in the first council meeting in April, which is April first? Is that too late? I think it, we'll have we'll check, and I think you know I think we'll have to check, and I mean there is actually a, you know, a work session item. I'll I'll ask okay. uh, in terms of how things are tracking along on this, and be able to we'll talk about it next Thursday at our session if you want. But I can let you know in terms of what the timing is. Um, the, as John said, there is I think a first. Uh, a first uh, hearing on Tuesday next week, um, but uh, that's, I mean, if it keeps on progressing, it won't be the last. Thank you. You're welcome. We'll have to find a reason to invite you to give a presentation next month, too. You're, you're yeah. going to straight <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to open it up now for public comment. But if anyone would like to address this, uh, please state your name and address in three minutes. Mm -hmm. Good evening, I'm Rachel Jensen, Executive Director of the Lower Columbia Preservation Society. Our mailing address is PO Box 1334, Astoria. <laughs> um, and I'd like to say that we're generally in favor of both bills, definitely 929. <laughs> I've been looking over this, and the board has looked over um, 927. We've spent quite a bit of time on it, and I have to tell you, even with a master's in historic preservation, I'm still finding it difficult to really understand how it will apply to us locally. Um, so I appreciate you know, that it's going to take some real digging on your part to, to try to really understand it. But one of the things, the questions I have is, um, I don't see anything in this bill that would preclude uh, our local community from putting an opt-out in our own ordinance. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, I thought that that was the whole point of this bill is that you don't have the opt-out anymore. Right, right. But can a, so. can a jurist, the question is, can a jurisdiction add an opt-out? Huh. Interesting, man. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, good evening. John, does a, is a unit, do I need to get my address? Yeah. Chris Hayford, 68721. Um, does, is a, how is a unit defined? Is an SRO a unit? I would. I have the bill. I gave the bill away. Uh, I would have to look it up. Because many of our uh, historic structures traditionally had SRO, and I believe we. I noticed there are some over there in Uniontown for rent too, and I don't know if those are a brick and mortar foundation. Right. And most of our um, historic Victorians do have that brick and mortar, which are horrible. I would guess that um, if there is going to be a letter of support, uh, these are companion bills, okay. and I think it would be good and, and better received to be, you know, to be able to to hold off and really kind of look at these because they were meant to be um, processing and, and playing along together. So, but I think I can. I mean, what I'm hearing is there's maybe more. I can communicate this. Seems like there's more general support for nine two nine. Uh, 927, the, the council wants to be able to have a, a little bit more time to, to review this matter. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, item uh, 8C is local historic preservation grant rollout. So, um, planner uh, Nancy Ferber is going to uh, talk about the rollout of a state historic preservation grant uh, that uh, we have received. This is going to be the third time we've uh, done this uh, type of process. <laughs> Uh, to be able to use state historic preservation funds and rolling them out locally in a, in a city of Astoria administered grant program. And uh, we typically come to the city council to be able to get you information about this so you can talk it up uh, to your constituents. So. Thank you. Yes, it's good timing tonight. Um, so as Brett mentioned, we are, and, and John actually, a certified local government, meaning occasionally we're eligible for grants from the state historic preservation office who actually gets funding from the federal level. Um, and we've, we've gotten $12,000, which we've generally used as pass-through pass facade grants um, to hand down to people who want to do preservation projects. So we're now at the point where we have this $12,000 that we're ready to roll out for eligible projects. Um, this year we capped those grants, the individual ones we're passing through, at a $4,000 um, limit. So potentially we're doing, looking at three or two, or two to four projects um, at a $4,000 cap. And the city will match 50-50 for these projects. Um, I've sprinkled in some before now for photos from previously funded projects. Um, we should brought this up before. So these are known um, historic districts right now. To be eligible for these funds, the property, and it's for residential properties this year, um, must be a historically designated structure or be inventoried as contributing in one of our historic districts. So that's the red kind of blob, that's Uniontown, um, the Shadley McClure, or downtown or for the other two areas that have just been inventoried but not designated um, as districts, that's where it could be um, a historically designated structure as a one-off structure. 
So those are the, the general areas. Specifically to work because it's state funded, um, they want it to be very visible to the public. So it's not for interior remodels um, or for new construction, but really looking at preservation rehabilitation projects, something that's visible from the street facade, redoing windows, replacing siding, something that has a very strong street facade kind of impact that you would notice walking by. Um, some of the projects may or may not require historic review, um, and we'll, we'll get to the, the intake part of this in a second. Um, but there is pretty much a big range of what's, what's eligible. So in the past we've done roofing projects, um, window projects, repairing stained glass. Um, it's really pretty flexible of what we can, um, what we can find. Our previously funded projects from two years ago um, were specifically in the Uniontown area, so a bunch of houses in, um, on the Alameda Strip. Um, we did some window, window work, um, changing out some old vinyl windows that shouldn't have been there to more historically appropriate um, wood-clad windows. Um, there was some door work, some restoration work for some front doors around Washington Street, and a new roofing project. So they're really, they're small projects, but they have quite a bit of impact for these neighborhoods and, um, and for homeowners, too. This was a good one, too, where the homeowner redid the entire staircase and then um, refurbished the front door. Um, so this is very brief, but the next steps I will have flyers downstairs. This year we're doing an, an intake um, application so that people can just come in the front door. We'll have a chat with them on whether or not they're eligible or not to not have to go through the whole application process. From there, create a wait list. We usually have more projects than we can fund. Um, and then take it through the review process, which requires some lengthy review because it's state funding. I will have the forms available downstairs and posted online within the next day or two. Um, but I'm happy to answer questions and ask that you, that your constituents know that these funds are available and projects need to be completed by the end of July. So we're in a bit of a time crunch this year to get the work done in the summer. Excellent. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. That's the, uh, the, the end of the regular agenda. Are there any comments from the public about any other items? From the council? In that case, we are adjourned, thank you. <laughs>